This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our monthly ASMAC luncheon. Um, I'm really excited about the guest speaker that we uh, have uh, for you today. Um, he's a, a well-respected and renowned film composer. He's the former president of the SAL. And uh, he's my friend, Richard Bellas. Please give it up. Oh, thank you, everybody. I am very flattered uh, to be here. Um, it's a little unnerving because I've been doing a lot of public speaking and uh, at various film music festivals and colleges and universities. <clears throat> but it's, it's all been to aspiring composers, emerging composers. So to, uh, to speak to a group of veteran colleagues um, and very talented writers is, uh, is a little unnerving. And to add to that, I'm not particularly fond of the subject matter I was asked to speak about, um, me. Uh, so, but when uh, Dwayne Tatro calls, you know, you, you answer and do the best you can. Um, I'm not very comfortable as well with, and then I wrote. So uh, what I'd like to do is give you sort of a minimum of background information, play a couple of, couple of things, and then I'd like to tell you about my mission, my, my passion uh, these days, and, and what I'm doing hopefully to, uh, to help our business and our profession. Um, as you're aware, the music business uh, has changed significantly since digital reproduction became a reality, both from a business standpoint and uh, a music creation standpoint, not to mention a performance standpoint, if you count auto-tune and, uh, and some of that technology. Um, the business ramifications are things I've been dealing with constantly as a member of the board of directors of ASCAP. When people can reproduce music at home, without a loss in quality, what we used to call a generation loss when it applied to either tape or striped 35 millimeter mag stock. Um, too often the value of music is reduced and very often that's too free. For the music creation standpoint, when it's easy to create music that sounds just like film music, the time, the education, and the experience that was once a mandatory part of being a film composer is diminished to a point where originality and skills are uh, all but forgotten. While this affects arranging, it's not quite the same thing. Uh, I was a member of this organization back before composers were involved in the, org the organization. I remember thinking when when composers became a part of this organization that it was merely for the point of changing the acronym 
from asthma to, uh, to ASMAC. Um, arranging still requires know-how and skill. Uh, it took me having a career as a composer to realize just how much I loved and actually preferred being an arranger. Uh, for one thing, um, imitation and emulation is anathema to being an arranger. As a matter of fact, the entire goal of arranging is very often to take something that exists in one form and change it into something different and identifiable with its new performance. And I love that about arranging. So my mission these days is to try and re-sophisticate or elevate our profession. Uh, to spread some of the realization to aspiring and emerging composers that as software for creating music becomes more and more user-friendly, it makes music become more common. And common is of lesser value than rare or special. When everyone has the same gear and the same samples, uh, sample libraries, it will be the composer's skills that will set apart one from the herd. And skills are not available from any software manufacturer. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I checked. I, I actually entered in the search criteria of many websites, composer skills, and nothing came up. Um, Okay, a little personal background. I've been writing music for a long time. I'm a second generation musician. Before I was born, uh, my dad was a dance band leader. He, uh, he and his band had the first mainland dance band uh, to be hired as the house band by a hotel in Hawaii. His band played on the roof garden of the Pleasanton Hotel on Oahu. And this was well before Harry Owens and his Royal Hawaiians. Some of you re may remember that, uh, that name. <clears throat> and he moved the family to California just before Pearl Harbor, months before Pearl Harbor. And after serving in the Navy, um, he got his teaching credential uh, and became a junior high school band and orchestra teacher. My junior high school band and orchestra teacher, which was interesting. Um, my mother had been a stand-in for Myrtle Loy and started me in, I, I guess what you would call acting. It wasn't really acting. I was three years old. Um, and I think she loved being on the studio lot. And I kind of became the way she could continue a bit of that life. But acting it started to get old for me around the age of nine or 10, and I started studying piano. Now, I had um, a teacher, a very special teacher named Charles Crenshaw, um, who had a very individual style of teaching. As I sat with him on the piano bench, he would write out the first eight bars of a piano arrangement to a standard, Stardust. And then we'd work on that for the remainder of the hour. And if the following week um, I came back and I had practiced, he'd write out the second eight bars. And we'd work on that. No scales, no 
technical exercises, just arrangements of lullaby of birdland and when sunny gets blue. So I was being introduced not only to arranging right in front of me, but also to major seven chords and nine raised 11 chords. And by the time I got to junior high school, now I can ask my dad how to transpose these chords for various instruments. So I started a Dixieland band. I was a trumpet player. And I started a Dixieland band when I was 14 years old. I was writing, writing for that band. And then at 16, I started to get interested in big band writing and playing. Um, split lead trumpet player. Uh, Ollie Mitchell and Bob Edmonton, uh, Edmondson, two wonderful studio players, at the time created an organization called Swing Incorporated. And Swing Incorporated was about four or five big bands, all made up of young players, and a few of us young arrangers. It was me and Darnell Pershing, Dave Blumberg, and Jack Eskew. Um, and they assigned me one of those bands, which I dubbed the Freaky Friday Wonder Band after the Joe Maney group of the same name. And we did sort of rock and roll big band arrangements. And this was my audition band, which got me my first job at 18 uh, as the music director for the road version of ABC's Shindig. Uh, what, that's, that's a whole experience in itself. Shindig, ABC's Shindig. Yes, yeah, and I was, uh, this, was the, this was on the road. Uh, well, if I was 18, that would be 50 years ago. What's the math? 65, 1965. Jerry and the Pacemakers were a big deal. Um, the Dixie Cups were traveling with us doing going to the chapel and we're going to get married. Um, so I spent most of my 20s doing arranging and conducting for artists like Johnny Mathis. Um, Jack Fearman, <laughs> bless his heart, told, taught me everything about rehearsing and conducting on the, on the road. And uh, what a teacher um, Jack was. So Johnny Mathis, Leslie Uggams, Abby Lane, Connie Stevens, these people were all on the road and doing Vegas a lot. And then groups like the Doodletown Pipers, the Young Americans, um, the Four King Cousins. So, and this was, this was a period when I was introduced to the Disney theme parks through my writing partner, George Wilkins. George, at the time, was the heir apparent to Buddy Baker at Disney. Buddy was getting ready to retire and George had been brought in to uh, work with Buddy and take over when the time came for Buddy to retire. So I got a call from one day from George saying, are you busy? I said, no, I'm pretty loose. He said, good. We have 30 hours of original music to write and record for something called Epcot. And this was the beginning of a very friendly relationship with Disney theme parks for me. Just prior to the opening of Epcot, Buddy brought about four of us arrangers in and said, uh, I want you to do, I want each of you to do three songs that the Sherman brothers have written. And one of the guys said, well, Buddy, what's the instrumentation? 
and Buddy in that uh, quasi-Jimmy Stewart drawl uh, said, well, it's the, it's the imagination pavilion, so use your imagination. <laughs> and we were all allowed to choose our own treatment and our own instrumentation, and we recorded on the Disney scoring stage. Yes, Virginia, there was a Disney scoring stage. Uh, on the Disney lot, you can see by the podium that only Disney engineers could create something like that. Entirely metal, totally mobile, and the sweep clock built in uh, to that podium. Now, I recently lectured at the uh, Royal College of Music in, in London, and the professor there asked me if I would present some things to the students about writing for theme park music, so uh, for the experience. And so here's a little bit. I just want to show you a little bit, um, play a little bit of what I did for the, the students there. I wanted to let them know the benefits and some of the challenges of working on theme park music. So if we were talking about the benefits, the first thing was that I was always brought in early and made a member of the creative team. I was even brought in a year before an attraction would open and, and pleasantly invited to become a contributor on the, uh, on, the, on the team of Imagineers that were putting this thing together. That wasn't happening in film or TV at the moment. Uh, budgets, the budgets were very workable. And I figured out years, why, uh, years later why. The reason is that these attractions were going to run for 10, 15, 20, in the case of Star Tours, 25 years. So when you amortize the music over 25 years and four or five parks, you don't have to worry so much about cutting corners with the, with the budget. Finally, there, there was the technology. There was always a cutting edge of technology issue, which in most cases was a hoot to, uh, to overcome, but there was always something. Uh, one, of the first, one of the first things I was involved with as a musical director was Star Tours. And this, of course, the, the ride was the flight simulator technology. It was the first time the flight simulator was involved. And for the video that was in the flight simulator, we used, of course, John Williams' music from Star Wars. I edited that together, and then we re-recorded everything uh, with an 80-piece orchestra. But there was a lot of music for the pre-show. And one of, the, one of the fun projects for the pre-show was when people are coming in, there was a, a droid. You know, the pilot in Star Tours was a droid. And at this one place, there was a worker droid repairing a pilot droid. And he had a boom box next to him. And he was supposed to be listening to some kind of terrestrial radio droid FM station. So we had to create a piece of music that a droid might be listening to. This is the mid-80s now, so we're talking about filtering everything, affecting everything with electronics. But the truth of the matter, I love this piece of music because it pockets. It it's an ass wiggler. It really feels good. And the reason it feels good is Ralph Humphrey, Ken Wilde, George Deering, Michael Boddicker, 
and Steve Foreman playing his variety of garage percussion, oxygen bottles and uh, Mazdaphone. And then Fred Selden playing Iwi, and we've spent a hell of a long time trying to get just the right sound on the Iwi. And as you'll hear, it ended up sounding like trumpets with Harmon mutes, but you know, what the hell. So here, here's the little piece of music that we created for the droid room. Can we turn it up, Larry, or uh, again? a little Thomas Dolby blinded me with science. It's probably in there. Um, one of the musical challenges was, uh, was next. This is a 360-degree theater, the China Pavilion at Epcot. Buddy Baker had done the original score, and that uh, particular film ran for about 20 years. And China finally called up Disney and said, you know, We've changed over the past 20 years. We've had some progress. And we think you should come back and shoot this thing again. So they took their pole with nine millimeter cameras, 35 millimeter cameras attached, and went to China and reshot it. And I was asked to score it. Spotting a film with nine screens um, is a challenge. Uh, and of course, you, can't, you have to do it on a computer. So there's three rows of three screens each. And you sort of hope that you found the right focal point and right around that. Um, we mixed in six channel, left and right front, left and right center, and left and right rear. Um, I've had to write a lot of Western European and Western music uh, before. Chinese music is something entirely different. Um, if you don't grow up in the culture, you have no idea whether you're writing the equivalent of Mary Had a Little Lamb or whether there's actually some substance to what you're, to what you're writing. And the research was a little tough. I could do about 10 minutes at a time and then take a half an hour break and come back and listen to another 10 minutes. So the instruction was for Western ears, Western audience, but it's sponsored by the government of China. So it has to have a little bit of uh, validity for, for them. So we used an orchestra, and then we overdubbed three uh, Chinese musicians, the fabulous Karen Han on uh, Arhu. Uh, a Zhang, I believe it's called a Zhang. It's the Chinese equivalent of the Koto with movable bridges. 
and the equivalent of a hammered dulcimer. Um, uh, and I think, uh, I think we got it. This is a little um, suite of, uh, of the music from here. Now, we had to crash it down. But, oh, by the way, Bruce Babcock did the, uh, was the orchestrator on it um, and did, did a wonderful job. We had to crash it down from six channel to stereo, and, and uh, it sort of worked. But uh, here's a little bit of that music.
learning from, oh no, please, that's all right, you don't have to do that. <laughs> um, now moving across the lake at Epcot, I all of a sudden was involved in the Mexico Pavilion. Um, you know, there's one thing that I worry about with our, with our young composers is that they're starting to get on the path for film composing so early that there may just be a lack of experience. You know those 11 arrangements I had to write of Girl from Ipanema in, in 10 different keys? It was a great learning experience. I realized the other day that it, those of us who grew up writing early, if we wanted to hear what we had written, we had to put a group of musicians together. Now you can be 27, 28 years old and never worked and never work with a live group of musicians. It's all electronic. And I think this is one of the things we need to be cautious about in our, in our world today. So we move over to the Mexico Pavilion. The Mexico Pavilion had its own set of, of um, challenges. It's a huge room. It's a boat ride. Very much like Small World. Okay, except Small World even has some partitions in it. This room has no partitions in it. We're going through various areas of Mexico. And the music has to change with these various areas. But because there's no partitions, people are hearing the outgoing music when they hear the incoming music. So it has to be all in the same key, same click, same tempo, same chord progression. Now for a lot of this, it works just fine, but not for everything. And the problem, of course, is that we're using, we re-recorded the original uh, music from Three Caballeros, which is this tune. Three Caballeros, they say we are birds of a feather. Happy amigos, no matter where he goes, the one, two, and three goes, we're always together. Oh, we have the stars to guide us, guitars here beside us, to play as we go. We sing and we samba, we shout, what means I caramba? Oh yes, I don't know. That sets the format. That's the tempo, because that's the finale. That's the tempo, those are the changes. That's it. So, for some of the areas, easy. One of the areas had to be mariachi. We did this arrangement. This was done at Capitol, you know, with, with all the folks. Um, 
Now, one of the scenes, however, is romantic. Uh, Donald is in a boat singing to a senorita. Um, and I could not make this tempo work. So I wrote a little romantic theme that sounded like this. <laughs> some odd time meters in it. The reason is because I had to take this, one, two, one, two, one, two, and make it one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then match all of the changes. So while you'll never hear it quite this way, um, I have split them hard left and right um, to show you a little bit of how they go together. <laughs> Believe it or not, they do. It's hard to, <laughs> it's hard, depending on where you're sitting, it's hard to hear the two. Um, an interesting, an interesting problem and just one of the, uh, one of the many challenges. Okay, now I'd like to tell you a little bit about my mission, which has also become my passion. I mentioned that I serve on the board of directors of ASCAP, have for eight years now, and there's plenty going on there. We have a wonderful new CEO, uh, Beth Matthews. Beth is taking over for John Lofermento, who's retiring after 17 years as uh, CEO. She's been, for the last two years, our executive vice president and general counsel. So she knows the operation inside out. Very smart lady, um, digitally uh, uh, literate, and I think is going to just have wonderful, uh, and a wonderful effect on our organization. At the same time, we're going, and BMI is in the same boat as ASCAP when it comes to a consent decree. So we're, we're now talking with the Department of Justice, trying to make it possible, trying to negotiate something about our 70-year-old consent decree. Consent decrees usually last seven to 10 years and then sunset. Ours is 70 years old. Um, that would make a big difference in our ability to do business in the digital age. I, <clears throat> one of the problems with the consent decree, both for ASCAP and BMI, is that we have to issue a compulsory license. If you, if you come to us and ask for a license, we have to give you a license, and that gives you the right to the entire catalog of ASCAP or BMI. Now we start to negotiate a price. And if we can't negotiate a price after, ten, after two or three years, we have to go to rate court. I said to the board the other day, I said, you realize that the world's oldest profession has a better business plan than we do. It doesn't take an economist when every hooker knows that 
you negotiate the price before you give the product away. So we're, we're trying to rectify a lot of those things. Finally, um, Maria Palante, the new uh, Register of Copyright in Washington, has asked the Congress for a new act of copyright. The last one is 1976. That's three years before the Walkman, that would be the cassette Walkman, came out, and 25 years before the iPod came out. So you can imagine the number of amendments there are to the existing uh, copyright law, and it really doesn't help anybody at this point in time. So those are the exciting things that's going on with that. But in addition, um, my work, uh, in addition to my work with ASCAP, I've been traveling all over Europe uh, specifically, giving master classes, lectures, and presentations to try and what I call re-sophisticate or elevate our profession. Every year we are graduating hundreds, maybe over a thousand, aspiring film composers from all over the world. These are film music programs. They are now offering doctorates, master's degrees in being a film composer. Uh, something was not around in my time. Um, and that's the equivalent of music schools graduating hundreds of harpists every year. You know, there's one per job opening. Um, so I talk to aspiring composers and attempt to convey that beyond electronics and software, there are skill sets and a knowledge base that is essential to elevating the perception of what we do. Filmmakers are getting no training in film school regarding music as a post-production element. Craigslist, of course, young composers, we now have this glut of a lot of young composers who are taking jobs for very little or nothing. And that has an effect on the perceived quality of music. It says to young filmmakers, if music was important, they would have told me about it in film school. If music is important, how come it's so plentiful and cheap? So through the master classes and, uh, and lectures, and now uh, video tutorials, we're calling the Richard Bellis Masters, Society, uh, Masters Series. We're trying to bring a sense of skills, sophistication, and responsibility to the profession. So what I'd like to do now is to play you a little excerpt from, um, we, have, we have three, uh, three videos. One is on free time, uh, how to write for free time and how to conduct and, uh, and not use the click. One is on sonic competition, knowing that if music is gonna perform a service, it has to be heard and it'll only be heard if it doesn't compete with dialogue and sound effects. And then this is the third and newest one, um, which is creativity on a deadline. Young composers are so eager to write that they, they want to leave the, the, the spotting session, go home, find some samples, and start writing cues. Elmer says, Elmer Bernstein said, I get my hands on a film and I watch it 20 times, once in the morning and once in the afternoon, until the film tells me what to do. So what we're talking about here is allowing some time for the mind to digest the film and let the mental computer do an archival search of the composer's brain before starting to write. 
And in this excerpt, we're, we're talking about inspiration and uh, what is not creativity. It's a short one. All right, so tasking, stress, and the temp score are the adversaries of creativity. Knowing that, we can better figure out how to nurture the creative process. But first, let's take a look at what creativity is not. Imitation, sometimes referred to as emulation or homage in an effort to make it seem more sophisticated and intentional, is not creativity. It can be executed creatively, but does not represent the creativity we're talking about. Inspiration is not creativity. However, it's often a part of the creative process. Inspiration should be considered a bonus for the film composer, but not a necessity. Inspiration is even more mysterious than creativity, if that's possible. It represents an idea, a light bulb that goes on, a spark. It's like the electronic ignition on a gas stove. You can't cook with it, but it can ignite a fire with which you can cook. And like creativity, it often comes when we are doing just about anything other than what we think we should be doing. Now let me give you a personal example of how inspiration works in the creative process. I got a phone call one day asking if I'd be available to score a television movie. It was a network miniseries titled It, Stephen King's It. It was in the process of preparing for this score that I discovered a significant lesson about what I had thought was a fault of mine, and namely, procrastination. For many years, I thought I was a procrastinator. When it came to writing music, I always seemed to be staying up all night, one or two nights before the delivery date. And this was hard to understand because I was definitely motivated. I loved writing music. I wanted to be successful at it, so why was I always behind? I considered procrastination a fault. However, what I had been experiencing up until this time was not procrastination. It was percolation. And once I recognized the similarities between percolation and procrastination, I was able to schedule creativity, or percolation, into my project calendar. So once I was hired for this miniseries, I started thinking about the music. My initial thoughts were along the lines of something of Bernard Herrmann's motivic style. Now, not imitating Herrmann's music, but just the motivic style he often used. I also needed a theme for the main title sequence, and I wanted a dark ominous interval to start my theme, but I didn't want to use a tritone. Uh, tritones were already overused in this genre. So one morning I stepped out of the shower, dried off, picked up the hairdryer, increased the speed. Wait a minute, let me hear that again. I ran to the piano. Seventh, inspiration, the spark. I had the interval. Now, what part of the chord should it start on? The root, the third, the fifth, something else? 
I'd like to be able to play it with strings. So first I'll transpose it up so that it starts on the A below middle C. Now I can try A minor with the first note of the interval being the root. Not bad. Let's try F sharp minor using the A as the minor third. Also pretty good. Now, using the A as the fifth, the A would represent a D chord. And now something occurs to me. If the A is the fifth of the D chord, the G sharp, a major seventh above, is the raised eleventh of that chord. My background in jazz and as an arranger says, this could be interesting. So, maybe now, if I create an accompaniment in a Hermanesque type ostinato based on that D9 raised 11 chord, so inspiration, the hairdryer, gave me the interval and initiated a search of my memory archives, with the search criteria being mystery horror, major seventh, and Bernard Herrmann. The search of my personal archives brought relevant memories and information to the desktop of my mental computer, ready for examination and reorganization, resulting in That's a little of what we're trying to. <laughs> thank you. Um, what we're trying to show some of the uh, some of the newbies in our business. Um, the final stage of my mission uh, is a total treat. I've been fortunate to be the host mentor of the ASCAP Film Scoring Workshop for 17 years now. This will be my 18th year. Um, it was initially started by Nancy Knudsen and composer Fred Carlin around 1988. When Fred moved out of the area, they asked me to, uh, Nancy asked me to sort of fill that position and I have ever since. We receive around 300 applications every year from all over the world. Uh, we accept people from every PRO in the world. But out of those 300 applications, we have to select 12, 12 emerging composers. And they spend a month with us preparing for their final recording session on either the Newman stage or the Eastwood stage with a 60-piece orchestra of Mike Lang's Conrad's, uh, some of the best studio players uh, in town. We made a short video featuring some of our alums who have gone on to, uh, to have successful careers. And rather than me yammer about it, I would like to, uh, I'd like to show you this, this video. This is, the, <laughs> this is the premiere of this video. And I got a call on the freeway on the way here from the editor saying, 
oh, hey, man, there's, uh, you know, a few seconds of a gap, black, in the middle. I said, great, I don't know if I can download a new version of it. So you're going to see the one, forgive me when there are a couple of seconds of black in the middle. Um, but here's our, here's our newest video. I, you know, you've heard the term sizzle reel. Sizzle reels are very short and, and very hot. This I call a salivation reel. This is, this is for, uh, to excite young composers about coming and, and working in LA and being a part of, um, of our workshop. This is the moment every composer in the ASCAP television and film scoring workshop has been waiting for. Some with trepidation, some with great expectation, and all just a little bit nervous before stepping onto the conductor's podium to work with the best studio musicians LA has to offer. However, before this moment can happen, a few other events have to take place. Hi, I'm John Debney. I'm standing at the very same podium where great names in film music have recorded iconic scores. Here, right here on the historic Newman scoring stage at 20th Century Fox. Before each year's class steps onto that hallowed podium, they must first be chosen from a field of almost 300 international applicants. The judging process starts with a group of working composers who listen to every application and choose their favorites. ASCAP's Mike Todd and Jennifer Harmon, along with workshop host and mentor Richard Bellis, then painstakingly review the top scores from each judge and select the final 12 participants. Recently, we invited five of our successful alumni to meet up at the Eastwood scoring stage on the Warner Brothers lot to share some stories about their experiences. All agreed that the workshop was absolutely instrumental in launching their careers. How many times did you actually have to submit before being accepted? And what was your reaction to the acceptance or perhaps rejection? Well, I was very lucky to be selected uh, the first time I submitted, but it almost wasn't the case. Uh, when I found out about the workshop, I was living in Canada, and I was a little worried that they might not, the workshop might not be open to participants from all around the world. So I tried my best to sort of pretend I was an American. And uh, I got a, uh, an American <laughs> phone number with this complicated call forwarding system, and, and none of it worked. And so I didn't realize, uh, and same with mailing address, I didn't realize I got accepted. If I hadn't made the call just to make sure that I didn't get in, I you wouldn't have, have known. known. I applied uh, at least, yeah, five times before I got in. Um, and uh, I, each year I would, I would usually get, uh, one or two years I didn't get into the top, you know, because they tell you whether you're in the top percentage, top 10%. But I, I just realized after the, the first time I got into that top 10%, I said, wow, I was in the top 10%, but I still didn't get in. I said, okay, I just need to keep trying uh, to do this. And uh, when I got in, I was, it was a mix because I was extraordinarily happy and excited um, for it, but I was also like, finally, just finally, finally, I, they let me in. <laughs> they let me do it. <laughs> The Chosen 12 come from all over the world to the ASCAP offices in Hollywood to start a month of preparation and training. The workshop is provided free of charge by ASCAP and the ASCAP Foundation. For many, it will prove to be a life-changing event. 
my real world experience after graduating from USC was temping. Um, but I needed to get real world music experience. So having the, the workshop poised right after the graduation year set me up for um, what would follow right after the workshop is when I uh, became assistant to Hans Zimmer. I found the film scoring workshop to be like a stamp of approval. When, when you meet other people in the industry, they're like, and you tell them you went through that workshop and they spoke at it as well, they're just like, well, you must be good if you went through that workshop and they take you more seriously. And I think it, it just allows you to make that connection a little bit more easily. All right, you're expected to orchestrate and conduct your own cues and deadlines for turning in your sketches and your scores are absolutely crucial. This workshop is not intended to prepare you for low-budget indie films, but rather to become a major player within our industry. And the mere fact that you've been selected gives us every indication that you have the potential to do that, to become an A-list composer. All right, so this is a session. On the first day of the workshop, participants meet their mentor, Emmy Award-winning composer Richard Bellis, who will let them know what will be expected of them during the month-long program. He discusses the current state of our industry and gives them an idea of how to value or price their work. Almost every skill and craft involved in making a film has a team, a department, cinematography, lighting, wardrobe, sound effects. But all too often, there's a misconception that composers work alone, a virtual one-man band. The music editor is one of the most valuable team members a film composer can have. He or she plays an essential role in the music production of every major film. So we get Michael Ryan, one of the best, to work one-on-one -on -one with our composers. I think it's important for young composers to understand the role of a music editor in the composition and creation of a score for a film or television project. The understanding that a music editor brings through their work creating a temp score and relating that information to a composer is very beneficial. The music editor has a very important job in trying to find out what the filmmakers are trying to achieve musically and where that music is going to go because that becomes the template for what the composer who's going to do the final music does with their music. Most of the time when there's going to be music played in production, whether it's in a dance club or a, a live group performing, what the music editor does is create a, a click or thump track that goes along with that. And when they begin shooting that scene, they, are, they play the music as they roll the cameras and everybody's dancing, everybody's in tempo. And then when it's time for the dialogue for those characters, they turn off one side of the music, which actually has the sound, and the other side has this click track, which is going through a large subwoofer and creates this low-frequency thump, so that everybody in the background can continue to dance in tempo while they're able to get a clean recording of the production dialogue, and then when they're done with that dialogue, they'll turn the actual music back up, everybody is still in tempo, and then when they go to cut that later in post, everything is uh, consistent in uh, whatever takes they use. The composers are randomly assigned one of four clips from a feature film. This gives them each a scene with A-list writing, acting, and directing, a perfect opportunity to create a wonderful cue. So what scene did you get, and what was your reaction when you got that scene? My scene was Anna and the King, which thrilled me because it was the main title. And, you know, I think we, we all get into this business dreaming of writing a beautiful theme. Uh, the funny thing is... Um, I think we don't usually dream about scoring comedic action as much. And when we were given the offer to trade 
uh, scenes uh, that night, the only people that stayed behind were the people that had Nutty Professor clumps. The, the one comedy clip, uh, I guess they would rather do a main title or a, or a big theme, but looking back, um, those were some of the most impressive cues of the whole workshop. Uh, I had the notebook, and nobody else wanted the notebook in my group, and I trade, somehow I ended up on a trade for it, but I thought it was a beautiful scene. And one of the most, probably the most interesting moments of that was there was a hug in there, and I wanted to play them coming together dramatically. And I did play it a little too dramatically, and I hit it right on the nose. And I remember Richard asking me, he said, okay, give me a hug. And so I gave him a hug, and he goes, okay, when you hug somebody, when do you feel it? When do you feel that? And he goes, you might hug somebody, and you physically touch them here, but when you feel the hug is immediately after. It's kind of like that squeeze that happens is the emotion. And so I ended up writing my cue to actually land more on that emotion. It was a huge learning moment for me. Producers Mike Todd and Jennifer Harmon are charged with lining up an impressive list of professional composers, studio executives, music attorneys, and agents as guest speakers. So the thing I've noticed with composers working for the first time with an orchestra, the biggest problem is the problem of balance. How do you balance this orchestra? You have four groups in the orchestra. You have the strings, the winds, the brass, and the percussion. And it's in that order that you want to use them. The strings are the mainstay of the orchestra. You can listen to them longer than any other group. There's more music written for strings than any other group. The next group are the winds, flutes, oboes, clarinets, and bassoons. When you combine the winds with the strings, and this is something that a lot of people don't have clear, is basically what you're doing is you're making the strings thicker. So if you take like one flute and you put it against say the first violins, or you put it with the first violins, the violins will absorb the flute, but the flute will lend its quality and thicken up slightly the sound of the violins. You add two flutes, now you can hear the flutes. You still hear the violins. You put in three flutes, now you're starting to crowd the violins. Then you go to the brass. The brass is a very dynamic group, and, the, and what the brass does is it lends a lot of vitality, a lot of rhythmic vitality, and a lot of mass to the orchestra. And then to this, to this massive musical salad, you add the percussion, the pepper in the salad. And with these four groups, if you do it right, and if you balance it correctly, now you've got a score. During the course of the workshop, we have various industry speakers that come in. Um, were there any particular tips or lessons or maybe relationships that developed from the people that spoke during your year? I think the most important part about having people come in to speak with uh, the ASCAP workshop participants, is when uh, we're given the opportunity to interface with the people who on day-to-day -day, produce film music, the music executives, the music editors, the scoring mixers, the orchestrators. When we have an opportunity to meet them, we start to understand how a film score is made from the perspective of not just someone sitting in a dark room trying to make it. So the ability to, um, to understand film music production is something that I really gained from the ASCAP uh, film scoring workshop. As a composer, more so than I think other musicians in your training, we spend all the time by ourselves. And the workshop enforces that we are not isolated, we are a community. And um, as community members and now leaders having gone through this and being successful at it, it's important to take care of that. The musicians, the fabulous musicians we have in LA our teams, our music editors, and our orchestrators, and how to keep that a healthy, viable choice. I think what a director wants to see in a composer that they work with is a spirit of cooperation and somebody who can, um, who's flexible and who can course correct 
and be egoless about it. And that's a really hard thing for an artist to do is to take them to be thick skinned and to take themselves out of it. The composers who, who are some, you know, the ones that I, I'm most excited to work with or that I look up to the most are the ones who have this amazing ability to just make changes with a smile on their face and just because they're asked to. Conversely, I've seen composers kind of crash and burn because they dig in and they say, this is the right piece of music and you're crazy for telling me that it's not and I can't change it and I can't make it better. And so it's like, as soon as you get to that point, you may as well just sort of, you know, call it quits. I loved having the executives in just because we were able to have good conversations with them and it took a lot of that mystery out of it, to be honest. Like, it was just like, oh, this is just another person, you know? And uh, we, are getting, we are getting late, and I apologize for that. Um, you get the idea. I think this, uh, this upcoming generation is pivotal in continuing to create value in music. And uh, so that... Um, that has become my mission and my passion, and uh, it's really nice to, to share it with you, and I thank you for letting me do that. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk, and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.